Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship sermon. I'm Pastor Stephen, and we are studying the 11 o'clock hour, First uh, Peter. We're in First Peter chapter 4, and I'm going to read, and then we'll examine verses 12 through 19. The apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. But let not uh, none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. For it is time judge for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think it's, it's obvious that the recipients of Peter's letter uh, were living under conflicting circumstances. Uh, their life wasn't ideal. Uh, their life isn't what we would call normal. This letter was written during the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero. His cruelty has forced most of the church to depart from Rome. Uh, most of the Christians uh, that were living there have left. They have now uh, gone north to the area of Asia Minor. But some Christians, like the Apostle Peter, have remained citizens of the empire. How corrupt was Rome during this time? Well, in chapter 5 of his letter, uh, the apostle calls the city Babylon. He refers to them as the ancient Mesopotamian city that the Lord destroyed because of her idol worship. That's how bad Rome was. They were referred to as Babylon. And so living there was unpleasant, was unfavorable for a Christian. The letter, the contents of this letter, uh, are very significant for the church. Because of what they were experiencing, uh, what Peter has written to them is significant for them. Um, Jesus has promised disciples. He's promised his church that we will suffer. Uh, he predicted persecution in the last days. Uh, Jesus often warned his disciples that they were suffer for his name. And so the apostles adopted a responsibility, if you will, to prepare the church for that coming storm. 
And so we are responsible in hearing and observing what the apostles are teaching us because they received these things from the Lord. So what does Peter and the rest of the apostles teach us concerning trials and suffering? They teach both good news and bad news. First, the bad news about suffering. Are you familiar with the parable of the sower? Remember in the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable uh, about four soils um, that uh, represent different people uh, who respond differently to the Gospel. Uh, this parable uh, includes four different types of soils. Um, and the type of soil that is pertinent to our study this morning is the rocky ground soil. According to Jesus, the rocky ground represents those who hear the gospel. They immediately receive it with joy. But uh, when suffering and trials come their way, they have no root. They have no foundation. And so they fall away. That parable, the parable of the sower, serves as a warning. And so it's important for the church to supplement their faith with doctrine and theology. So that when, not if, when persecution comes on account of the word, you will have strong roots and you won't fall away. And so the bad news, the warning that comes with suffering is that many Christians will not be able to endure. And what I mean by Christians, I mean insincere Christians. Those who just are Christians outwardly, that the gospel really hasn't penetrated the heart and, ha and hasn't formed roots inside the heart. They haven't really embraced it by faith. And that's appropriate for us and for Peter's initial recipients of his letter. Uh, their response to persecution is critical. If they wilt under the pressure uh, from the Romans, they'll abandon the faith and it will prove that they're not truly Christians. They're not true believers. And so it's a, an admonition for us, too, that when we face trials, when we face adversity, what is our response to that? Do we have a strong, firm foundation of faith where we weather that storm? Or do we have a heart of, of rocky ground where there is no root? And when temptation and suffering comes, we fold. Now, this will be the final time in Peter's letter that he addresses persecution. I mean, he's, he's talked about a lot, beginning in chapter 3, verse 8, all the way through all of chapter 4. This large section, almost two chapters, 
deals with suffering. But his final words of suffering to the church, his final instructions, includes three, three admonitions. Peter says, first, we should not be surprised when trials come our way. Secondly, he says that we should rejoice in our sufferings. We shouldn't become depressed or cheerlessness. We shouldn't have cheerlessness. And he says that we should not be ashamed to suffer for Christ. So those are the three instructions. Rejoice in your sufferings, don't be surprised, and do not be ashamed to suffer for the sake of Christ. Do not be ashamed to suffer for righteousness. Peter says in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you notice at the end of verse 11, Peter writes the word Amen. Typically, Amen is used as a benediction. It's used to finish a thought, to finish an idea. Many scholars believe, because Peter ends verse 11 with Amen, that he's done writing about suffering. He's done writing about persecution. But something has happened. While he was writing this letter, he receives word of something major happening inside the church. And so Peter reopens this letter and he adds to it. Before he sends it out, he adds verses 12 through 19. I don't know how true that is, but it's certainly interesting to think about. Anyway, these final instructions for the individual. He first begins with, do not be surprised when you encounter fiery trials. And, and these trials, we're, we're not talking about, you know, catching all the red lights as you drive through the city. We're not talking about, you know, having to park way out back in the parking lot and walk all the way to the front. Fiery trials. They're grievous. They weigh on the mind. They weigh heavily on the soul. They're various in nature. They can't be put in one box. They are a wide range of possibilities. But they are severe. They are severe enough that when insecure Christians encounter them, they'll fall away from the faith. They'll give up. To them, to those that are not sincere, it's not worth it. It's not worth going through a trial for the sake of the Christian faith. But Peter says, true Christians, they won't give up. Not only are they not exempt from fiery trials, they won't give up. And it's not hard to understand. Rather, it's, it's easy to, to believe that we would be exempt from severe hardship. I mean, we're the people of God. We love God. We serve God. Although we, we sin, we stumble in our 
faith. We certainly desire to seek righteousness. We repent and we continue to move forward. We love the church. We're good to our neighbor. We want to see our neighbor saved and blessed. Why would God bring hardship to us? I mean, we're his beloved people. Shouldn't the wicked, the people who hate God, shouldn't they be the one to suffer? And Peter says, no, we shouldn't be surprised. Because God brings suffering to the Christian to test us. To test us, to, uh, to, to try us, to purify, to bring out something good. It's a benefit for the Christian. And there are several benefits to suffering. And we, we've talked about these before. Peter has mentioned these before. One benefit to suffering so that you know that you're on the path to glory. I mean, that's a great indicator that you're living a Christian life is because you're suffering for being a Christian. You're facing adversity and trials for being a Christian. These businesses, these business owners that are being persecuted by the government and the world because they are holding fast and firm to their convictions. They're, they can have assurance that they're on the right path to glory because of their suffering. Because the path to glory, it's marked by suffering. Right? This is the path that, that Christ has trailblazed for us. This is the path that if you're following Christ, it's a path that you'll also follow. And so you will incur all of these experiences on the road to glory. And we often forget that Jesus, the King of glory, is also the man of sorrows. In order to share in his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. And so there is great value for suffering for the sake of righteousness. And that's, and like I said, it's a good indicator that you're on the right path because you share in the same experiences as Christ, that you're actually following after him. Suffering is, is also beneficial to the church because it is a gift of God. God grants us this gift. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I mean, think about what Paul just said. God grants to you saving faith. Yay! Great! Thank you, Lord! That's wonderful! But God also grants to you suffering. Um, and they're both to be received by faith. Both his grace and his 
suffering are to be received by the Christian by faith. The word grant that Paul uses means to extend favor. That's, I know that's hard to believe, but suffering is God's extended favor to you. Why? Because of what suffering does. What suffering is meant, the purpose of suffering for the church, the value of it. It's a good indicator whether you're living a Christian life. Suffering is a test of, of whether your faith is sincere. Suffering is also a bond that you share with Christ. It's something that you have in common that can, that can draw you closer. You can identify with him through suffering. It's, it's the same kind of bond that, that, that parents want to have with their children. My grandfather and I, we, we shared the same love for baseball, in particular uh, the New York Mets. It was a bond every five, five nights a week. We would sit together, watch the game, talk about the game and fellowship. And a great bond that we shared. It, it was a, a time of communication, of, of fellowship. And the scripture says that we bond with Christ through his sufferings, through our sufferings. That, that's that union that we have, that connection. Whereby Christ communicates his grace and mercy, his strength, his hope to us. And that's the part that has us to endure. And, and that's important, and I, I don't want you to miss this. The reason why we share in his sufferings is so that during the time of sharing in those sufferings, Christ can communicate to you the strength that you need to endure, to persevere, the hope that you need so that you don't walk away. That's why suffering's a gift, and it's granted to us. So that we can have that open communication, that bond with the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture also says suffering produces character. It strengthens our hope. It strengthens our endurance. And those are valuable things. So it's not hard to see how suffering is a gracious act of God. And so if God uses suffering for our good, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience it. In fact, we, we should rejoice. Some of us have remarkable stories of suffering, of enduring great difficult trials. We're stronger for it. We're faithful for it. And because of these benefits, we shouldn't become depressed or have cheerlessness, but we should, like the apostle says, rejoice. 
verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Notice the word but at the beginning of verse 13. Uh, it's This verse, verse 13, is used as a contrast to verse 12. Peter says we shouldn't be surprised by trials in verse 12 and verse 13, but instead we should rejoice. Suffering because you are faithful to Christ, suffering because you have this allegiance to Christ is a cause for joy. Insincere Christians, they don't rejoice because they don't have that connection with God. There is no, there's no real relationship with God through Christ. Our joy should increase with every trial that we experience. If the thought of suffering depresses us, and I, I'm not talking about depression, the kind of depression that's associated with mental illness or with mental health. I'm talking about the kind of depression that causes our hope to sink. Oh no, here we go again. Things never go my way. I know this is going to turn out bad for me. Right? We're talking about despair, cheerlessness. Trials shouldn't decrease our hope and joy. They, it should increase. Let me show you something from Scripture. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is a... Is a is a story that Paul tells us. He tells us a story of a guy. Eventually you find out that Paul's referring to himself. This guy, Paul, was granted access to the third heaven, which is the highest heaven where the throne of God is located. And when he was transported there, uh, either by spirit or physically, he, he doesn't remember. But he's there anyway, and he saw and heard things that, that he wasn't given permission to repeat. And so this was an extraordinary event in the life of Paul. But look at what Paul says about this experience in verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, right? I mean, having that revelation would make my man prideful that you were given something no one else was able to have. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I asked the Lord, I pled with the Lord about this, that he, that he should take it away. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. 
For when I am weak, then I am strong. Anybody want to trade places with Paul? I seriously. We ask anyone, who's that one person in the New Testament you can relate to the most? I pick Paul. No, you don't. You like Paul because of the revelation. You like Paul because of the visitations with Christ. You don't like him because of his sufferings. Stop. This dude suffered. He said that in order to keep him from becoming prideful and arrogant because of the visions that he was given. I mean, really, if, you, if I was given these visions from God, I'd be a very prideful man. But in order to keep Paul from becoming prideful, God gave Satan permission to harass him. And Paul was at the brink, right? I mean, he, he, he didn't want it anymore, man. He, he said, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, that this would be taken away from me, to make it stop. But what was God's response? My grace is sufficient for you. Because when you are weak, when you're weak, you're actually strong. And Paul says, that was good enough for me. Therefore, I'm content in weaknesses. I'm content when I'm insulted. I'm content when I'm facing hardships, persecutions, calamities. I'm content. I'm not depressed. I don't wish it go away anymore. I'm ready and willing to endure it. That word content that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in the Greek it means well-pleased, resolved, uh, delighted. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism and when he was on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, God said of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's the same word that Paul uses for content. Isn't that marvelous? That the same feeling that the father had for his son is the same feeling the apostle had for sufferings because he knew that when he suffered, that bond that he had with Christ, that union, was strengthened. And the life that he drew from the Savior, the strength and the hope and the wisdom that he drew from Christ, would cause him to persevere, would keep him faithful. That's that's amazing. That's amazing. Peter also says that we should not be ashamed of our sufferings. Uh, permitted that we're suffering for a righteous cause. We should be ashamed if we're suffering because of our sin. Right? We should be ashamed if we got caught committing adultery and now we're suffering the consequences. That is shameful. We shouldn't rejoice and that. But if we're suffering for a righteous cause, 
Peter says we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let's be honest. Only one man handled adversity perfectly. Only one man. We read from Paul that he originally asked the Lord to take it away. The other apostles, they didn't handle trials very well at the beginning either. On the night that Jesus was arrested, the disciples thought they were going to get arrested too, and, and they left. They ran, they hightailed out of there. They want nothing to do with that. Judas, complete failure when it came to temptation. Complete failure. So the disciples early on in their ministry didn't have a very good record when facing hardship. Only one had a perfect record, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and that's why he is our example. But something changed uh, with the disciples once they believed and understood that Jesus had resurrected from the dead and he was alive. They weren't ashamed anymore. They weren't depressed. They, weren't, they were not living in fear. After Jesus ascended into heaven, the church began to meet daily. Where? In the temple. In front of Pharisees. In front of the Romans. They weren't hiding. They didn't care that the Jews and the Roman guards occupied that place. They weren't ashamed. Even after the apostles were arrested, they reported back to the church. They prayed for more boldness. They, re they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They believed it was a blessing. Are there any consequences for being ashamed of being a Christian? Absolutely. If you're ashamed of Christ, of the faith, there are consequences. In the Gospels, uh, when Jesus began to predict that he would suffer, that he would be executed, and that his disciples would also be executed, he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer. If you walk away, if you turn away from this because you don't want to suffer, when I return, I'm going to be ashamed of you. I'm going to turn my back from you. None of us wants another person to be ashamed of us. Children seek the approval of their parents. We seek our spousal, spouse's approval. Employees seek the approval of their employers. We all want to be commended. But Jesus gives this warning to his disciples that if they are ashamed of him here on earth, if they do not wish to be known as his disciples, 
so that they could receive commendation from the world, so they can be accepted by the world, so they can skip out on being persecuted. Jesus says, I'm going to have the same sentiment towards you at my return. Jesus will return the favor. You don't want no, you don't want people to know that you're a Christian. No problem, Christ says. You have, you have nothing to worry about. So how do you guard against that moment of Christ being ashamed? How do you prepare yourselves right now to be a faithful Christian when adversity comes? By committing yourself to the Lord. By having the resolve, no matter what, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve you. I'm going to serve you with my whole heart. I, I, I trust you, Lord. I, I believe that you will not abandon me, that you will not leave me alone. I believe your strength will, will, will carry me through. I believe you will preserve me. I trust in your hand. I trust in your ways, Lord. I, I have confidence. That's, that's the word, right? Confidence, Lord. I, I am confident that you love me and that you will keep me steady during all kinds of fiery trials. But let's not be naive that to think that the road is not difficult. There will be trials. Peter says in verse 18, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What does Peter mean by the righteous are scarcely saved? He doesn't mean that Christians were almost consigned to destruction and they were pulled out from the fire of hells just in the nick of time. That's, that's not what he means by that. The phrase scarcely saved means with difficulty. The road to glory is marked with difficulty. And if the road for glory is marked with difficulty for us, what about the unbeliever? If the road retravel that leads to glory is marked with suffering, adversity, and fiery trials, and, and the end is glory for us, what about those who don't? Not good. Not good at all. Peter's point is that suffering may be difficult now, but suffering for righteousness sake gives you confidence that you won't suffer like the unbeliever when God puts the world to the end, when God puts an end to the world. If we're saved, but we still face difficulties and adversity, what would it be like for the unbeliever? Ed, I, I, I do not want to think about that. I, I do not want to think about the end for them. And so that's why I'm focused on my heart, preparing my heart, my mind right now, that whatever comes my way, I know that it is brought to me by God's hand. And that same hand will carry me through it.